our series back up in First and Second Peter. We've just finished five through seven, looking at these qualities that Peter is reminding the church, reminding Christians, hey, you should be pursuing these in an increasing manner. And now we come to the concluding thought of that. And what we see in these next couple of verses, verses eight through eleven are really some sobering reminders from the church, but also some really beautiful or uplifting, encouraging reminders from the church. So it's a really neat wrap-up to the thought that Peter's been working on. Uh, if you would, please, stand out of respect for the Word of God as we read 2 Peter 1. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 11, but I'm going to start like we've been starting these past couple of weeks in verse 3 so that we get the full weight of this passage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the everlasting promises in your word that we can lean on you, that we can lean on them. God, in this time, may we not come to your word with our own preconceived notions about what we want it to mean, but rather with an eager, humble desire to know what you say and then to submit to it, to line up under it, to allow it to conform us to the person of Christ. May you be magnified. May you be glorified in this time as we continue to worship you through an attention to your word, may we worship you wholeheartedly, holding nothing back. We are so grateful to be your bride. May you purify us in that, Lord. Make us like Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing we see in there is actually a, a pretty harsh, sobering reminder. It's a pretty strong lesson. Peter doesn't pull any punches in this verse. He says, okay, so we've just gotten through these qualities. Faith, virtue, knowledge, brotherly love, agape love. We've talked about these important qualities that should define a Christian's life how we should be making every effort to richly add these qualities, these characteristics to our lives, to let these define us. And then Peter doesn't hold back. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. 
And the harsh reminder there is, wait a minute, are you saying that I can be ineffective and unfruitful as a Christian? I thought it was automatic. I got saved, I'm a Christian, I'm fruitful, I'm effective, I'm advancing the kingdom of God just by default of being a Christian. Peter says, no, that's not the case. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as we engage with this passage, if we're going to engage with it humbly and honestly, is am I an effective, fruitful Christian? Does my life advance the kingdom of God? Or am I kind of squandering my knowledge of Jesus? Am I doing nothing with it? Mike, you teach CPR, which is a wonderful thing. Do you teach CPR just so that the people can say they know it? Or do you teach CPR so that if the people have to use it, they know how to use it? He teaches it so people can use it if they have to. It wouldn't do a lot of good if I'm in a restaurant, Adeline and I go out on date night, somebody begins choking, and they're like, does anybody know CPR? Me. Will you use it? Nope. Well, why do you know it? Well, so that I can feel good about knowing it. It's kind of for my own edification and blessing. I know CPR just so that I can be proud of the fact that I know CPR. But you're, you're not going to use it? No. All right, well, then I'm ineffective and I'm unfruitful in my knowledge of CPR. Christians, is it possible that we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, am I ineffective or am I effective as a Christian? We see this. This isn't just in Peter. Lest we're tempted to write this off and say, well, he's just, it's just contextual. He's just talking to that one group of people. No, you see it in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2, But I, brothers, Paul's writing to the church, and he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants with Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. He's saying, look, you started off as a baby, so I had to feed you with milk. And at this point, I should be able to feed you with solid food, but you're still stuck on infancy. He goes on, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it. This is a rebuke. He's saying, church, why haven't you grown up? Why haven't you matured in your faith? Why are you still stuck where you started? Now, there's no timeline here. If you remember, go all the way back to March of 2021, where I presented the idea of relentless pursuit. And we talked about that we have no expectation that everyone in this church body will be on the same level. We don't expect that everyone will be at the same place in their walk with Christ, their same depth of maturity. This isn't a, hey, we all have to be perfectly uniform in where we are, and if you're not, you're not good enough, get out. This is a, you know what, we're all growing, but we should all be growing. We shouldn't be content to say, eh, I'm kind of good at the level, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good here. We'll just, we'll stay here. We'll keep wearing toddler shoes, we'll keep wearing toddler clothes, we'll keep eating toddler food. There's no point in growing up and maturing. No, Paul calls it out in the church. Peter calls it out in the church. Consider this in 1 Corinthians 3. So this is later on in that same chapter. So Paul has started off this section with saying, you should be growing up, you should be maturing, but you're not, and it's a problem. And he goes on and he says, According to the grace of God given to me, this is in verse 10, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, hey, church, I came to you, unbelievers, I laid the foundation of Jesus. I presented Jesus. I presented the gospel. You believed in it. That's the foundation. Don't mess with the foundation. 
but now each of us are building on that foundation. So if you're here this morning, if you're joining us online this morning, if you wind up watching it on Thursday afternoon and you're a believer, the foundation's been laid. The concrete's poured, it's set, Jesus is the foundation, don't mess with it. So now Paul starts to ask, okay, how are you building on that foundation? How are you personally building on that foundation? Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying the foundation is set, it's Jesus. The life we live in knowledge of Jesus, the response we live as believers, is building on that foundation. Some of you believers are building with stone, with precious stones, with gold, with silver. You're building with your best. You're building with strong, durable materials that last and raise something up. Paul says some of you are building with wood. Some of you are building with hay. Some of you are building with straw. Anybody want to live in a house made of straw? In these Ohio winters? No, thank you. Paul says, look, on judgment time, your work is going to be tested. Your life is going to be tested. Now, don't get cynical. Don't spiral into despair. He says at the end, though, you yourself will be saved. We're not talking about losing your salvation because you didn't do enough in this lifetime. We're not talking about God looks at you and says, ah, oh, you know what? You didn't quite do as much as him, so I'm going to take that salvation from you. you know, Paul says, you will be saved. This isn't a question of faith. This isn't a question of salvation. That's genuine. That's the foundation. That's laid. Don't let this passage get distorted like that, okay? So we're not questioning our faith. We're not questioning our salvation. Paul is saying, what are you doing with it? Are you building up something that will last? Are you investing in things that are worthwhile? When you get tested, Galatians, what does Galatians say? Galatians 6, 5, each will have to bear his own load. God will test each one according to what he has done. You can't say, hey, I didn't do much, but I was best friends with somebody who did a lot. That's not how the test works. God's going to look at each and every one of us and he's going to say, what did you build on the foundation of Jesus in your life? Was it something that stood up to examination? Or was it ineffective and unfruitful? Hebrews 5, 12 and 13, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. We've got to be willing to look at ourselves and say, am I growing? Am I maturing in my faith? Am I bearing fruit in accordance with that maturation? Am I effective in knowing Jesus as Lord and following Him? I've said this before. I'll keep reminding you guys. High standards, because that's what the Bible lays out. And if it makes you feel better, I have the highest standards for the elders. So this year, I've asked all the guys back in January, I said, hey, where are you weakest? What are the deficiencies in your life as a follower of Christ? Where do you need to grow in leading this church well? And I've checked in with them throughout the year. 
So I'm overjoyed to say that the men you've entrusted to lead this church, your elders, they are pursuing this seriously. They are willing to look at their own lives and say, this is where I need to grow. Here's what I'm going to do to grow in it. Church, follow the example of your elders. Be willing to look at your own life and say, am I effective or not? Am I fruitful or not? Am I growing in maturity? Can you see evidence of it? Well, am I really supposed to bear fruit though? Isn't that more of just like a, like a leadership thing? Isn't that more just for the people up on stage, up on top? Is this really the call on my life? Are all believers meant to do this? Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Believer, you were created for good works, that you should walk in them. You can't get around it. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, at least in church circles. I would bet that a lot of us in this room could recite this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the end of Jesus' time on earth is right before his ascension. He gathers his apostles and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and therefore, therefore, because all authority has been given to me, I give you this charge. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That phrase that we translate, make disciples of, that was just one word. And it was go and disciple all nations. So what does that word disciple mean? Anybody heard the word disciple before? Yeah, right? Read the Bible. I've heard sermons. I've heard disciple. All right, what's it mean? What's Jesus saying? When Jesus says, go and disciple all nations, that word means helping someone to progressively learn the word of God to become a mature, growing follower, literally a learner. So to disciple all nations is to train someone in the truths of Scripture and the subsequent lifestyle required by them. So discipling is taking someone from immaturity, and I don't mean that like in a lot of the, I'm talking about like a baby, right? We just, we had our baby, Violet. She is physically immature. She had to learn how to use a spoon. We as her parents are going to help her grow as she physically grows to learn and to, to be able to more confident walk, more confidently use things, right? That's what we're talking about. So to disciple someone is to take them from the stages of infancy and help them grow and mature and become a strong adult who is then going and discipling others. The word comes from a word, methodist, that means the mental effort needed to think something through. A learner, someone who learns the doctrines of scriptures and then applies them. This is the charge given to all believers to disciple the nations, 
to take someone from unbeliever to mature follower of Christ. We're called to bear fruit. This is what it looks like. I've got three people who I would say are discipling me. I've got it set up on a schedule so that once a week, once a week, I am talking to a brother in Christ who is wiser than me, more mature than me, more experienced than me, and they're asking me the hard questions. They're saying, hey, what are you doing to grow? Can you look at your life and see evidence of maturation? This, this is important. This is what the church has been called to. We've got to take ownership for this. Not one of those three approached me. I approached them. And I'm not saying it. it these are guys who are so invested in the church. These are, these are three men who have poured into the church with their whole lives. So when I say they didn't approach me, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersion on them. Like These are guys who have proven that the church matters in their life. I'm saying that we can't sit back and wait for someone to come to us. we got to take ownership of this. So who in your life is discipling you? It's not a Sunday morning sermon. It's not. Because I'm not sitting down with each every one of you after a Sunday morning sermon saying, hey, what stuck out to you? What didn't? What are you doing? I mean, we're just not. We're not having a personal conversation. So Sunday morning sermons are great. Sunday worship times are great. Corporate Bible studies are great. But discipling is intimate life together. It's someone who knows you, who you know. Who's discipling you? Have you taken personal ownership of your growth, of your maturation in Christ? Are you pursuing being an effective, fruit-producing believer? This is what we've all been called to. I don't know if I can bear fruit. You don't understand. School was hard for me. You talk about learning the Bible. I'm not a good student. I'm awkward. I don't like talking to people. I get social anxiety. It's hard for me to invite people to my home. You don't understand. I can't do this. This just isn't who I am. Anybody ever said any of those things? Thought those things to yourself? This just isn't for me. I can't do this. I have great news, friends. Yeah, you can. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You can absolutely bear fruit. You can absolutely be an effective Christian. You can absolutely be that frontline believer knocking down the gates of hell. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. This is the parable of the servants with the talents. Where Jesus says a, a boss, a household manager... The guy in charge was going away on a business trip, so he took three people and he gave them a bit of money to invest and work with while he was gone. And when he got back, two of the people had done so, the one guy hadn't. What's the lesson there? Not, well, I didn't get as much as him, it's not fair. The household manager didn't require that. The question wasn't, why didn't you do as much as someone else? The question was, why didn't you do anything with what you were given? The lesson of that parable isn't that we all should have been given the same thing. The lesson of that parable is we've all been given something. We've all been entrusted with something. What are we doing with it? 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is a letter to the church in Corinth. This would have been one of the biggest churches of the time. 
Paul didn't put any, you know, exclusionary clauses before that verse. He didn't say, hey, knowing that your labor, just you three people, is not in vain. He's saying, no, church of Corinth, body of believers, all of you who read this letter and hear this letter, work for the Lord because your work is not in vain. You're capable of doing it. There's nothing holding you back. You have what you need to do this. And when you do this, church, the work is not in vain. We can all do this. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. We've done this exercise before, and we're going to do it again. And if you remember it, great. Imagine for a second the impact you could have. Imagine, Imagine five people in your life who you could have a profound impact on starting today, where they go from unbelievers to fully mature on fire for God believers. Okay, imagine that. You got, you got names in your mind. You got faces in your mind. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more, infinitely more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory. See, the imagination that we have, the thoughts that we have, God looks at it and he says, oh, child, I can do so much more that you couldn't even measure it. You think you could have an impact on three people? I could use you to have an impact on the world. You think you could have an impact on just your neighborhood? I could use you to transform this state. Guys, we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got Jesus leading us. We've got God who is able to do immeasurably more. That's the literal word, immeasurably more. So God literally says, what you imagine, I can do immeasurably more than. So yeah, you can absolutely bear fruit. You can absolutely have an effective, impactful life for the gospel of Christ. You can absolutely make a difference in following Jesus. 2 Peter 1.3, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we lack nothing necessary to bear fruit other than a willingness to go after it. That's, I mean, that's it. God's given us all we need to bear fruit, to be effective, to advance His kingdom. The real question is, do I want to bear fruit? Do I want to be effective? Do I want to be productive? Or am I content to be on the sidelines? Am I content to hang out in the back and let other people put the work in? Am I content to just ride the coattails? The question is not, am I supposed to bear fruit? Yeah, the Bible makes it clear that as a follower of Christ, I'm supposed to bear fruit and be effective in my knowledge of Jesus. The Bible makes it pretty clear that, yeah, I'm supposed to be engaged in advancing the kingdom of God. The question is not, am I capable of doing this? Scripture makes it abundantly clear that, yeah, I am very capable of doing this. The real question is, do I want to do this? Because if that desire is not there, then I'm going to make no use of what I've been given. If the desire is not there, then I'm going to neglect the opportunities I have and the resources at my disposal. So the real question, church, is do I want to be effective and fruitful for Jesus? Because that's what holds us back. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I believe I can bear fruit. I believe I'm supposed to bear fruit. 
Yeah, I, I want to. Does our life bear evidence of it? If I say yes to all these questions, yes, I believe I'm supposed to bear fruit. Yes, I believe I can bear fruit. Yes, I want to be effective in my knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does my life reflect that? Or am I giving it lip service because I know that that's the right answer? Proverbs 21, verses 21 and 22 and, and 25 and 26. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life righteousness and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. God says, if you pursue righteousness, you'll find it. You'll find honor. You'll find these things if you pursue it. This is God's word. This is God's promise. So if I look at my life and I'm not finding righteousness, well, maybe it's time to ask, am I pursuing it? Verses 25 and 26, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves. The sluggard refuses labor. He craves and he craves. Who wants to be part of a dynamic, thriving, put your hands up. Who wants to be part of a dynamic, thriving, healthy church that makes a difference? All right, so that's what we crave what are you doing to make that happen? I crave being part of a church that makes a difference. All right, what am I doing to make that happen? Or do I just sit back and crave and crave and refuse to do the toil, refuse to do the labor? The righteous gives. All day long, the sluggard craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. I can say, I believe I'm supposed to bear fruit. I can say I want to bear fruit. Does my life reflect that I actually mean it? Proverbs 23, 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Titus 2, 11-14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. This idea of growth, this idea of progress, this idea of change training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself for the church so that we might be zealous for good works, so that we might be zealous for effectiveness, so that we might be zealous for fruitfulness. To him be the glory. This has to flow from a heart that desires nothing but the glory of Jesus and Jesus alone. This has to flow from a heart that recognizes who Christ is and what He's done, and in an outpouring of love for that, gives Him our all. If we remove Jesus from the center of this, everything else falls apart. The day that I wake up and I try to pastor this church just so that I can say I'm doing it and not for the sake of Jesus, you're all in trouble. The day that your elders show up and say, yeah, we're here because we have to be, not we're here because we want to see Jesus glorified, the church is in trouble. And the day that the church 
wakes up and says, all right, I'll show up because that's what you do, not because I want to lift up Jesus, the church is in trouble. We all have to keep Jesus at the center of this, his glory driving us in everything. But his glory should drive us to pursue these things. And then Peter goes and he gives the opposite of this. He says, if you neglect these qualities, those who neglect these things in their life, those who write this off in their life, those who dismiss this in their life, he says, you're so nearsighted, you're blind. Neglecting these qualities is the same as being so nearsighted that it's almost like you're blind. What was blindness used in Scripture to describe? Unbelief. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Blindness was used to refer to unbelief. We're not talking about actual unbelief. Don't get it twisted. Don't let the passage get distorted. We're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about genuine believers. Go back to Corinthians. Their work will be tested. They themselves will be saved. This isn't a question of am I a genuine believer or not. What Peter is saying is that the Christian who neglects sanctification, the Christian who neglects ownership of maturation, the Christian who neglects to actively pursue growth, they're more comparable to an unbeliever than not. That's a sobering lesson. I, I don't know how to make that any happier because it's not meant to be a happy passage. He's saying, look, if we neglect these things, really, what difference do we have from an unbeliever? Romans 6, verse 6 and 17 and 19. Because don't, okay, don't get discouraged. It's easy. It is, it is so temptingly, and I use that word temptingly deliberately, it is so temptingly easy to hear these hard lessons, to hear these admonitions, to hear these challenges in spiral. It is so temptingly easy to listen to these high standards and say, oh my goodness, I'm a screw up. Man, I've missed the point. Wow, I've blown it. What's the point? Do you know how much time I've wasted in my life? Goodness, I offer nothing. It is so temptingly easy to hear these high standards and to fall into that trap. But recognize that for what it is. Recognize that as a tactic of the enemy who would much rather you wallow in self-despair and cynicism than say, all right, time to go after this. Recognize the temptation to spiral into pessimism as a tactic of the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy your zeal. That's what's true about our enemy, that he steals, kills, and destroys. So when we hear these hard challenges, don't let this steal, kill, and destroy your fire. Let it fan the flames into something more. Because he reminds the church of forgiveness. He reminds the church that this is who we are. We are forgiven. Listen to these passages and celebrate them, church. 
Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Believer, you are not enslaved to sin. You're free. You're not bound to death. You're not bound to destruction. You've been set free. Verses 17 and 19, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Celebrate that, church. Don't wallow in despair, don't wallow in cynicism. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you, don't run from that either. When God convicts me that I have abandoned a desire for effectiveness and fruitfulness, I shouldn't shrink back from that. I need to accept His conviction. But then don't stay stuck in, in, in the pit. Don't stay stuck in, what's the point? All right, God, you convicted me. Thank you. Now I have a chance to repent. Now I have a chance to pursue righteousness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for setting me free. Enable me to go after it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this verse, if you don't know this verse by heart, engrave this verse on your heart. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. So yeah, maybe you're listening to the first half of this and you're like, oh boy, I've blown it. All right. There are days where I'm like, oh boy, I've blown it. <laughs> Trust me, there are days where I say that. Trust me, there are days where your elders say that. Think of your favorite pastor of all time. There are days where he better have said, oh boy, I blew it. So if that's you this morning, if that's what you're feeling, if you're getting stuck, don't, don't stay there. Hear the conviction. Listen to the conviction. Listen to the standard. Listen to the challenge and accept it. And recognize that in it, it's because God loves you and He is reminding you that He has set you free. He is reminding us that He has called us to something holier, to something higher. And be grateful that He is giving us the chance to pursue it. And then He comes to, as He wraps this all up, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, or that they're like blind. And He comes to a really interesting passage, and this is going to be a fun, a fun wrap-up. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's some phrases in there 
that cause for some real interesting conversation. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Never fall? I'll never sin? No. All right, so what's he getting at? For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. Only by possessing these qualities I get entrance into... No. So what's he getting at? This is one of those fun passages that generate opportunities for believers to take ownership of what they think about Scripture. So I'm going to present to you, the reason I haven't clicked to the next slide, I'm going to present to you what people disagree on in these verses. I see, honestly, personally, I could argue both interpretations. I see where each interpretation of these verses is coming from. And there's some overlap. You'll notice that there's some overlap. And I see where they're coming from. It's possible that I agree with both interpretations. It's possible that I agree with one versus the other. I'm not going to tell you. Because your answer for why you think something should never be, well, that's what Sam thinks. If your answer, hey, why do you think this? Well, that's what Sam thinks. Not good enough. So I'm going to lay out what people think about these verses. And then it's up to you to take ownership of, okay, I'm going to pursue these verses. I'm going to make every effort to supplement my faith with knowledge. And I'm going to figure out what I think about these verses. We're going to take ownership of growing in our understanding of the doctrines of Scripture. So we see two intertwined thoughts. Like I said, there's overlap. There's relationship between these two. You can find plenty of theologians, respectable theologians, people who I would say, listen to that guy. He knows what he's talking about. Listen to that person. They know what they're talking about. That's a great book. Read that. There are those who would say these verses are all about sanctification. That these verses are saying, let your behavior lend testimony, add testimony to your calling. Right? The, the do as I, when we say do as I say, not as I do. No, for believers, it's do as I do. So there are those who would say that these verses where it says, therefore, make every effort to confirm your calling. These verses are about sanctification. Let your life provide evidence that backs up what you say you believe. When it talks about falling, they would say, well, that's, I mean, think about it. A believer actively pursuing sanctification, a believer actively pursuing greater maturity in Christ, will stumble less easily and less readily than an immature believer. A believer who has made every effort to take every thought captive, a believer who has made every effort to surround themselves with the body, to surround themselves with accountability, a more mature believer will get less easily ensnared in some of the obstacles a younger believer might get, get messed up in. It's why in Timothy, what we just look at at Timothy at the men's Bible study, talking about qualifications for elders, it says, don't let a new believer serve as an elder, let they get, lest they get puffed up with arrogance. So we see in Scripture the idea of, okay, a younger in their faith believer is more easily entangled in stuff that a more mature believer can deal with. So you'll find plenty of people who say these verses are all about sanctification. Then you'll find plenty of people who say these verses are all about eternal security. Perseverance of the saints is how you also might hear this, this phrase talked about. No, it's saying, let, let everyone make every effort to confirm your election, your calling and your election. 
Because when you see this fruit, when you see the effectiveness for Jesus in someone's life, it confirms that they are indeed saved. So make every effort that your outward behavior demonstrates the reality that you are saved. That it lends itself to that. And when it's talking about, for if you do these things, you will not fall, it's saying you will not fall into doubting your salvation. You will not trip up and stumble into doubting your place in heaven. When you can look at your life and say, yes, I see increasing fruit for Jesus. I see increasing effectiveness for Jesus. That is a defense against when the enemy says, are you really saved? Are you really going to heaven? You know how much you screw up. You know how bad you are. Are you really a Christian? You can look at your life and you can say, yes, I look at this evidence and I see it. And that enables me to not fall into despair and doubting my salvation, my faith. You find plenty of people who teach that these verses are yeah, kind of about sanctification, but more about eternal security. Depending on our own predispositions, depending on our own backgrounds, we may more readily see one or the other. Well, that's not what I... No. We've got to make sure that we're going to Scripture and we're desiring to understand Scripture. So if you listen to the first half, eh, it's about sanctification, not about eternal security. Well, why do you think that? Biblically, why do you think that? I mean, can you back up your position with Scripture? Huh? No, it's more because I've just always held that position. All right. Well, then do a dive. Figure out what you believe. Well, no, it's, it's clearly about eternal security. I don't know if I see anything about sanctification in there. Why do you think that biblically? Back it up. Well, it's more about what I believe. No, no. Go to Scripture. Make sure you can justify what you believe based on Scripture. And then depending on which of those two sides you fall in, there will be slightly similar, slightly different explanations of what it means when it says richly provided an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Some people would say that that's referring to the crowns believers receive to lay at the feet of Jesus. You go to Revelation 4, you go to 1 Corinthians 4, you go to Revelation 22, you go back to that idea in 1 Corinthians 3, right? That those whose work is burned up will suffer great loss, while those whose, whose work is not burned up will receive reward. So they would say, richly provided an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's talking about the crowns that believers receive for the work they've done for Jesus to then present to Jesus in heaven. Or people might say, no, the idea of richly provided an entrance into the kingdom of heaven, that's more talking about the richness of security, the richness of confidence, the richness of knowing the joy that I will be welcomed home by Jesus, right? That richness of, I don't have to question whether or not I'm going to wind up in eternity with Christ. That's a rich life. That's a rich confidence. See it in Acts 7, 2 Timothy 4, this idea of the confidence of being welcomed home by Christ. So that's that rich entrance that's provided for believers. Like I said, if you want to come up and talk to me afterwards, we can talk about this. But I'm going to ask you as many questions about what you think as you ask me about what I think. Here's where the church disagrees on these verses. There's overlap. There's some difference. Figure out what you believe. Pursue discipleship. Pursue knowledge. Let's make sure we can say, I believe this because it's what I see in Scripture. As we consider these ideas this week, am I effective? Am I ineffective? Do I believe I can bear fruit? Do I want to bear fruit? What am I doing about it? Let's all read Jeremiah 33, John 15, Titus 3, and Revelation 3. Read these chapters. Look for these themes. Look for these lessons. 
Apply the Acts model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Grow in our prayer life, ownership of our prayer life. And then the imitate Jesus, does my life indicate that I believe I can bear fruit? Does my life indicate that I've taken ownership of bearing fruit? Are we living like Christ? Jesus said to his apostles, the harvest fields are ripe. They're ready. We're not lacking for a ripe harvest. We're lacking for workers willing to enter the harvest field. Let's be like Christ. Let's make every effort to be effective for Christ. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you love us, how you bear with us. Thank you for how you empower us. Thank you for how you call us. Thank you for how you love us. We confess when we have neglected these things. I confess in my own life when I have set aside a pursuit of effectiveness, when I have set aside a zeal for you, a hunger for you, a passion for you, for when I have allowed that to grow cold. Forgive us, Lord. God, lead your church. Lead this body in advancing your kingdom. Make us effective as we surrender to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.